All right. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. It was a mystery as to whether the uh, the microphone would work, because I completely forgot to come up and do a little sound check beforehand. So praise the Lord, you are able to see me, and hopefully for those of you who are online, you can hear me as well. If you can't, this is very awkward as I stare at you and you hear nothing. Um, but no, it's good. It's good to be here with you guys, and um, really pleased to be. Uh, walking into uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 13 as we look at this The Cross series that we have been uh, walking through. So before we start today, I'm going to read to you guys some famous words about love. Famous words. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. I mean, how many of you guys have heard that before? No, at least one. Okay, so yeah, very, very, very famous, right? Now, obviously, that's actually from our passage that we're walking through today. But even our culture, if I were to walk up to some random guy on the street and, and say those words to even a guy... He'd be like, you know, I think maybe I've heard that somewhere, maybe a wedding or something. So it's very commonly read at weddings, but that is straight out of the middle of 1 Corinthians 13. And when we read those words, love sounds great. Like you hear it, and it's like, yeah, I want that. Yeah, I'd, I'd like some of that. And we would all say, I think to a degree, that we want people to love us, maybe not necessarily in a romantic way, but we would certainly want to be cherished and valued and heard. And we would probably even say we want to love others as well. But when push comes to shove, love is often hard and messy and, dare I say it, even inconvenient, right? Inconvenient. But love is supposed to define the life of the Christian. You guys have heard us talk about that before. Love is supposed to define the life of the Christian and life within the church especially, But if we're honest, sometimes we would be willing to settle for just being comfortable, being impressed, or maybe just even being loved ourselves over having to go to the trouble of loving. Now, we've been in the book of 1 Corinthians, and the Corinthians were struggling with this concept of love. They were kind of arguing a little bit or placing a lot of value in particular spiritual gifts, And Paul, as he's trying to address their kind of improper use of tongues and of all of the spiritual gifts, he grounds his addressing of those issues in love. This whole chapter that we're going to read about love, he uses it to talk about how they ought to act in the church. So even though we read these verses oftentimes at weddings, which isn't a wrong application of talking about love, There's actually a bigger application that Paul has in mind as he's walking through this, and that's relationships within the church. Relationships within the church. And that's hard. It's hard to love well. Now today, just to give you a map of where we're going, I'm going to be looking at two what's and then a why, and then a now what. So two what's, a why, and a now what. So there's your, there's your list, Ben, in case you're, you're interested. He likes, he likes the, the list. Two what's and a why. All right, before we dive in, let me pray. 
Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you that you have loved us first. When we were unlovable, you extended love to us. And Father, help us to understand that love as we read what you have to say to us today in your word. Father, give me wisdom and clarity as I speak, and may we have soft hearts and open ears. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, starting in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1, Paul says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. So this is the first section that Paul starts out talking about love. And this is, I want to look at this question of what matters. This is the first what, what matters. And it's clear that Paul is saying what matters is love. And he basically walks through three categories of things that are secondary and don't matter if they aren't accompanied or driven by love. So the three areas that he highlights, there's three sentences. Um, So there's three very clear things that he drills down into. The first one is what we find impressive. The second one, what we find powerful or being powerful. And the third one is being sacrificial. So being impressive, being powerful, and being sacrificial. He highlights each one of these things and says, without love, none of these things matter. So looking at the, the first one, impressive, he talks about speaking in the tongues of men and of angels. I'm like, well, how is that impressive? Well, the Corinthians were impressed by tongues. That's one of the reasons why Paul, in this letter, keeps having to say to them, hey, there's other gifts. And yes, you need to exercise these other gifts, and we need to have them in balance. And here's how orderly worship goes, and we'll look at that, look at that in coming weeks. But they're impressed by those things. Now, I think it's safe to say that that our particular church, FX Church, we are not a church that's impressed by tongues, but there are things that we find impressive. So if Paul was addressing us, he might not say tongues, but he might say something else. You'll have to figure out for yourself kind of what that might be. I have some suggestions later on. But just generally speaking as a culture, we're impressed by eloquence or slick music, great stage and lights, Lots of degrees and titles. Or even maybe if you're a part of a particular generation, we're impressed by whoever's the most real or the most vulnerable or the person that gets us the most and speaks to where we're at. There are particular things that we're impressed by and Paul is pushing against that. Maybe even it's a particular way of doing church. If we're impressed with a way of, yes, we are glad that we do it this way, Paul would say, good, but... There needs to be love. Why you do those things has to be rooted and grounded in love. In the second verse, he goes on to talk about uh, power. He starts with prophetic powers, understanding all mysteries and knowledge, having faith that can remove mountains. These are big things. And he's saying, hey, those are great. But again, what good is that if it's not driven by love? If you have great ability, great understanding, Maybe a lot of financial success. Maybe you have an inborn ability to just get things done. Or you have great standing 
in the church. Maybe you think highly of yourself. Paul's saying, without love, again, that doesn't matter. And the third thing, the sacrificial thing, you'd be like, well, sacrifice sounds good. Giving up all of your financial resources, saying, if I give away all that I have, giving up your body to be burned, yielding our entire lives for the sake of the gospel, wouldn't that be a good thing? And Paul says, if you're only doing that for something that is selfish in motive or something that isn't oriented around God and his love or driven by that love, then you gain nothing. You're just flapping in the wind, doing nothing. Now, there's ways that we even do this. Obviously, we give financially and might even give our lives at some point. Lord willing, that won't happen, but we don't know. But I think it also happens in small ways. We do sacrificial things. We slave away silently, you know, serving and saying, look at me, look how great I'm doing. Even if nobody's noticing me in our hearts, we kind of puff ourselves up. Yes, I'm I'm doing these things. I'm serving. Or maybe I'm silently suffering or enduring something, not because it's good and I love the other person, but just because I want to kind of stand in my heart and say, yeah, I've done the right thing. We think it makes us great and awesome, incredible. And Paul is saying, no. You can't have any of those things mean anything without love. Without love. So what matters is love. What matters is love. But that brings us to the question. It's going to do the second what of what is love. You can sing the song if you want What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. But we're confused. We are so confused about love. So it's important for us to kind of spend some time walking through how Paul describes love. Because he's going to do that in the next couple of verses. Paul, Paul doesn't just come out and give us a definition and say, here, here is my technical theological definition of how or, or what love is. Instead, he kind of paints a word picture of love. Gives us a, a, a just images and circumstances and says this is love so let's read it starting in verse four love is patient and kind love does not envy or boast it is not arrogant or rude it does not insist on its own way it is not irritable or resentful it does not rejoice at wrongdoing but rejoices with the truth love bears all things believes all things hopes all things endures all things and obviously that's what i read at the start of this morning Now, there's two things, kind of two prongs to this, the answer of the question of what is love? The first prong of the answer is love is an action. These things that Paul walks through are actions. There's a lot of verbs that he does. You know, love doesn't envy. Um, it, It doesn't insist. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing. It bears all things, believes, hopes, endures. He, he uses verbs, excuse me, I'm a, apparently a boy going through puberty right now with a cracking voice. But he, 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 does, he, he says love takes action. Love isn't just a feeling that resides in my heart, but it is, it is steps towards someone else and steps that happen in a particular manner. Now, that doesn't negate that there is something internal that ought to happen with love. But love is first and foremost 
an action. I can say, oh, I love you a ton. I have great affection for you. And man, you just, you make my heart sing when I see you. And I just really enjoy being around you. But then if I refuse to do anything that would actually communicate love or be loving, then I'm not loving. Plain and simple. Love is an action. Now, part of this idea of love being an action, though, we have to recognize that out of the heart, the mouth speaks. So when I do something, that is revealing what is in my heart. Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. So we have to cultivate love in our hearts. I think it's, it's good to think of love as a virtue that we nurture and care for in our lives. Now, Rox gave me permission to share this example, but think about cultivating as gardening. And Several years ago, when Rox was pregnant with Selah, Rox decided that for the summer she wanted to tend a garden. And I, the only reason I have for why she wanted to do that was, you know, pregnancy just did something to her brain. And so, because neither of us are gardening people. Like, I look at gardening, I'm like, not, no, no thank you. Like, I don't want to get my hands dirty. It's a lot of work, and it happens in the summer when it's hot, and... Yeah, that's just you sweat and you're outside. No, no thanks. I don't even like to mow my yard, much less garden. But Rox wanted to garden. And so during the springtime, she had a friend come over and they you know, planted some things. They did some soils. I, I know nothing about gardening, so they made a garden. Okay, whatever, whatever goes into making a garden, they did that. Now, I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say this. Rox can maybe correct me. I think that garden was then visited and cared for a total of zero times after it was, was planted. Maybe she went and, yeah, she's nodding. Yeah, zero times. So they planted the garden and then did nothing. Now, at the end of the summer, we, <laughs> there was a lot of plants, uh, but some of them were weeds. And most of them were weeds. And there were, there were a few vegetable-looking things. I don't even remember what was in there. Maybe a pepper or two. But it was mostly like, oh, this is, what am I supposed to do with this? This is, this is terrible. I mean, if you ever needed a good parable for, you know, weeds choking out the growth that you would have, that, that was our, our garden. Can it even be a garden if you don't garden it? I don't know. It was a, a patch of things planted. So we didn't cultivate it. Well, in my defense, I didn't want to have anything to do with it. I said, you, you'd be fine. She didn't cultivate it, okay? With, it's the same thing with love. Love is something that we cultivate. When we look at this list of patience, kindness, uh, not being arrogant, rude, et cetera, et cetera, these are things that we cultivate in our heart. We practice them. As you do them, it affects your heart. So sometimes you don't feel like doing any of these things, but as you do them little by little, it slowly helps sanctify you and change you and make you into someone else. And then what happens? More of those things come out. And as more of those things come out, it then affects your heart. It's an ongoing cycle, which is one of the reasons why we, when we don't love, it affects us in the opposite way. So loving helps us become more loving. And as we become more loving, it helps us to love. So love is an action. That's the first prong. And the second prong of what love is, is that love looks to others, to the other, or, excuse me, love looks to what others want and need. Love looks to what others want and need. So in this list, I just want to give very brief definitions for each one. We'll see they're all oriented around other people. 
It's very difficult to have these things if another person is not really present or involved. Patience. Patience, you're putting up with others and not expecting them to work on your timetable. You're saying, yes, I'm patient with you. Kindness. You're not wanting to be harsh, but you're wanting them to experience hospitality. Hospitality is something that our culture has pretty much lost. But if you go overseas, uh, to many uh, Eastern cultures in particular, you'll experience a great deal of hospitality because they want you to experience kindness. They want you to be honored and valued. And that is this idea of kindness. It's not envious. Love is content with what it has. Love is not boastful, so it doesn't look to make others feel small by making oneself feel big. It's celebrating others and their achievements. Love is also not arrogant. It doesn't think it's the best. That's a big one for me. I like to think I'm arrogant. Even, well, no. I don't like to think I'm arrogant. I just am arrogant. On the way over here, uh, I was driving and somebody pulled out in front of me. I really wanted to lay on my horn. I'm like, "Mm, yes, I'm going to honk at this guy. But then I was like, no, no, I need to be loving. So I did it. And then I thought, man, this is such a great, great illustration how I, how I didn't, how I loved this person. But meanwhile, as I'm thinking all of these things, I'm also thinking, this person can't take care of their car. It's a dump. They also pulled out of the trailer park. And I'm just really frustrated with them. So here I am thinking of how great I was that I didn't honk the horn. And I am in my heart just crushing whoever this person was. Not loving at all. I'm an arrogant man. Not rude. Rudeness is basically the result of wanting immediate justice dispensed by me or saying, like, I have the right for this person to be this particular way. And they've offended me, and I'm just going to let them know. That's basically what rudeness is. Love doesn't insist on its own way. It means it's willing to suffer discomfort. It's willing to be flexible or amenable. It's also not irritable, which means it's willing to be disturbed. It's willing to be disturbed. And the second part of that is not resentful. Now, the Greek for not resentful is actually very, uh, very clear. It says, does not count up wrongdoing. So resentment is kind of holding on to that wrongdoing that people do to us. And Paul is saying love doesn't count that up. Just lets it go. It says, I'm not going to hold that against you. Doesn't count up wrongdoing. Love doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing. So love really does look to the good of others, even if they aren't seeing it. So if they are doing wrong, love does not celebrate with them. And it instead rejoices in the truth. Those two go together, not rejoicing uh, at wrongdoing and instead rejoicing with truth. And this is one that our culture in particular really struggles with. We really struggle with it. Because we say, man, to, to push back against someone and disagree or, or heaven forbid, say you are wrong and you are in sin and you need to change. We look at that and we say, nah, that is, that's not loving. But in reality, telling people the truth, of course, how you speak truth is important. But speaking truth is an act of love. And failing to speak truth and instead celebrating falsehood is a failure to love. When we fail to speak truth, we fail to love. That's a truth that our culture desperately needs to get a hold of again. We need to be willing to rejoice with the truth. Obviously, that comes out in sexuality in a big way, but it comes out in others as well. 
being willing to speak what is true, being able to celebrate what is true. The Lord does that, and we want to do it as well. Then at the end, Paul gives this, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, which kind of form a unit together to show a disposition of relationship. Kind of, it wraps everything up that's come before and, and says, this is the attitude that I'm going to have towards you. An attitude of warmth and embrace and I'm willing to put up with things because I am loving. Because I'm loving. Okay, so, love is an action and love looks to what others want and need. So you put those together and we see that love ultimately Again, it's an action that looks to the interests of others over the interests of self. So that's kind of my definition for you that I think Paul is presenting to us through this word picture. of a love, love is an action that looks to the interests of others over the interests of self. Now that makes us ask the question, for us here today, are we loving people? Are we a loving people? Are you a loving person? Are we a loving church? When you look at your own life, where do you lack love? When you see this list, I can guarantee you there is something on there that you are weak in. And that we need to, to kind of examine our hearts and see, oh my goodness, this is in here. This is where I lack love and I need to grow. Maybe it comes out with particular people in your life or particular circumstances or particular actions that are done against you. All of us have something that kind of, oh, it's hard to do that list. Or should say, oh, do you, oh, there we go. I was like, where, where is it now? It's up here. Hard to do this list. I have, a, I have one in front of me too. Hard to do this list when these things happen to me. We also have a tendency to practice partial love. We'll start to be kind. We'll start to be patient. But maybe in my heart, I grumble or behind the person's back. I really don't have the same disposition at all. Maybe I speak with humility, but in my heart, I'm puffed up. Maybe I really wish ill upon someone when they do something. And I'm not talking about they, you want God's discipline or correction in their life. But instead, you, you really just want them to suffer. Not for the sake of repentance, because you just want them to get what's coming to them. That's kind of a halfway. That's, well, that's not even halfway. That's just not love at all. But we tend to disguise things and convince ourselves that we are a loving people because we do things the right way or we believe things that we should believe or our external actions seem to be moral but our hearts lack love. That's so often the way we are. In the, first, in the Corinthian church, if you had asked them, hey, are you guys a loving congregation? They would have probably said yes. Look at us. We've even a guy that we're loving who, who's sleeping with his mother-in-law and we still embrace him. And Paul's like, whoa, 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 that's, that's not rejoicing with the truth. And that's celebrating wrongdoing. What are you doing? So Paul is addressing here us today as well. Well, I should say the Holy Spirit through Paul is addressing us today. And is begging us to examine our lives. He's begging us to look at the life of our church. Are we a loving church? Do we do all of these with one another would someone say that we are characterized by these words and phrases? When they think about FX Church, do they think this? It is no mistake that Paul puts this in the middle of a discussion of the way the church should look. 
This forms, in many ways, kind of the core of what Paul is saying the church or the behavior, or, or he, he's defining the behavior of the church through this chapter, and everything swings upon it. Are we like this? The non-believing world looks at this and says, yeah, that's beautiful, we want this. But they don't know what to do with it. They don't know how to do it, and they also don't even know where it comes from. And so that kind of leads us to this third question of why. You know, I said there's two what's and a why. The first, so the first one was what matters. second one was what is love. And the third one is why is love foundational? Why is love at the core? And so verses 8 to 13 are Paul's answer to this question. In verse 8, love never ends. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Love is central and foundational. The greatest of these three is love. Why? Because it never ends. Now, you may not know this, but there is an entire industry devoted to examining and breaking down movie trailers. Okay? Breaking down movie trailers. So we're not talking about breaking down movies and examining movies. We're talking about trailers. Not games. Practice. You know, no, nobody gets that joke. But anyways, practice, or we're watching trailers. Now, I enjoy watching movie trailers, and I enjoy watching breakdowns of movie trailers. These people will kind of point out, oh, here's all these kind of different characters. Here's some plot points that you might see in the movie, because we see this in the trailer. I enjoy watching those, but I also really enjoy going to the movie more than I enjoy learning about the trailer. But what would it say about me if I'm like, no, nah, all I want to do is watch the trailers? And these trailer breakdowns, I'm, I'm, that's all I'm about. You kind of look at me funny and be like, you know, those, those are pointing to something else. They're a partial picture of a story, a greater story. And I think you would enjoy the movie a little more than you enjoy the trailer. Because ultimately the trailer is a tease, while the movie is the main course. And so for us, when we see what Paul here is saying, he's saying there are things that are going to pass away. There are things that are pointing to a greater and a future reality, and they will not exist in that greater future reality. And those three things that Paul lists are prophecy, tongues, and knowledge. And now, the prophecy and tongues kind of make sense. It's like, well, we'll be in heaven. There's not going to be need for prophecy, and tongues will all understand one another. But knowledge, like, well, how, how does that work? Well, Paul here isn't saying that the idea of knowing is going to pass away. It doesn't mean we're not going to know things or won't learn things, but that our sin-clouded understandings, the need to spur one another on to right thinking, the need to figure out knowledge, having knowledge that's tainted by sin, looking in a broken mirror as we try to figure out who God is, he says that will pass away. That will pass away. 
God has perfectly represented himself in his word. He's shown us who he is. But we don't see it clearly because of the sin that we have in our lives and in our hearts. And Paul is saying, one day, we will know. We will see him face to face. We'll still learn about God. We'll still learn about his creation in the new heavens and the new earth. But it'll be a perfect knowledge. It's not riddled by error. Now, when Paul says that the perfect will come, there, is, there are many people, uh, maybe even some of you in this church, and this is totally fine, that say that what Paul's referring to is the completion of the Bible. Um, and and that, that's why prophecies and tongues are no longer around today because the Bible's been completed, so we have everything we ought to know. I personally don't follow that interpretation. Uh, I, I, I don't think it's necessarily flawed, but I think Paul, by saying we're going to see face-to-face and referencing it back to that that's the time when these things will pass away. I think he's speaking about the new heavens and the new earth. Now, I don't think that that rules out. Cessationism is the word and saying that t- uh, prophecy and tongues don't happen. But I just don't think this passage is a good one to argue for that. So just so you know, you, you may hear teaching sometime and they'll use this passage to say, okay, so the spiritual gifts have ceased and I, I'm not there. I, I, can't, I just can't get on board with that understanding. But I think instead he's referencing this idea of seeing face-to-face. Jesus even spoke about this in the Sermon on the Mount, in the Beatitudes. He says, the pure in heart, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. They will see God. Now, back to this question. Why is is love never going to end? So if love is foundational because it'll never end, then why will it never end? Well, ultimately it's because it's at the core of God's being. That's who God is. He is love. God didn't arbitrarily look at love as something that was outside of himself and say, yeah, that that love thing over there, I think that's pretty good. I'm going to latch on to that. But instead, love comes from who he is. If love is outside of God, then love is higher than God, and there's nothing higher than God. So love is a part of his character. It's who he is. It flows from him into his work in creation. So when we see God face to face, when we interact with each other in heaven, when we relate with him and with the new created order, what's going to be the defining characteristic of all of that? Love. The way God will relate to us in heaven is love. So it's never going to end. God has loved us with this love that he speaks of in this passage. God is patient and kind. God is not envious, nor does he boast. God is not arrogant or rude. God does not insist on his own way. Think about Jesus being in this place. He didn't insist on his own way. He allowed allowed himself to be crucified. Why? For us. God is not irritable. Or resentful. He's not irritated by you or by me. Doesn't hold resentment or bitterness towards us. He doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing. He rejoices with the truth. Jesus bore our sin and endured our shame. Thinking about bearing all things and enduring all things. Jesus bore a lot of things that he didn't need to. But he did so out of love for us. On the cross. This series has been entitled The Cross. And when you think about why is the cross the cross, the answer is love. It's because God has done this for us. 
Jesus paid for you and for me. We owed a debt to God we could not pay because of our sin. Our sin separated us from him. But God, because he loved us, said, I will take that payment upon myself. I will die for you. And that's what Jesus is doing on the cross. And then he invites us to respond in faith. He says, this payment can be credited to your account if you will trust me. If you will trust my love for you. If you will trust that I do indeed love you as I have said. He says, will you do that? He says, that is all you have to do. It's not about getting right with me by doing a bunch of things, but do you trust me and my love? And he invites us to say yes. And so if you have not done that this morning, Jesus invites you to say yes to him in faith, believing that his death on the cross covers you. And for all of us this morning, as we think about love and God's love, we're reminded when we think about what God has done for us on the cross that there is no act of love God is asking you or me to do that God has not already done himself. God has gone to the fullest length, the fullest humiliation, the fullest hardship that any of us could imagine, and he's done it for us. So when he asks asks us to love to that annoying person or to sacrifice just a little bit more, he's not asking us to do something that he has not done and is not willing to do himself. That pushes us into loving others. We can do this, what we see here, because God has loved us. So, why is love foundational? Well, love is foundational because love will be the defining nature of relationship in heaven, because that's who God is. So love, as a result, then ought to be the defining nature of relationship in the church now. Let me say that again. Love will be the defining nature of relationship in heaven, so love ought to be the defining nature of relationship in the church now. And that is the answer to the final question of now what? Now what? You can think of it as a third what. But basically, Paul is imploring us to not get wrapped up in things that don't last, things that are silly. Why settle for something less in the life of the church that's not love? This passage isn't just saying, hey, be loving and love others. He's saying, love others over settling for good things. Love others over settling for good things. He's saying love is a better way than being consumed by the gifts that are good that God has given us. So, you know, speaking about our church, specific things for us to think about. I think our church is rightly very concerned with responsible living and making wise choices, doing church in a healthy way that God outlines and models in the Bible, living debt-free, sacrificing, making wise choices. And I think God says to that, good, yes, but be more consumed by love. Do those things out of a heart of love. So are you super concerned with responsible living? Good, but be more consumed with love. Are you super concerned with having your theological ducks in a row? That's for me. I love having my theological ducks in a row. The systems and the answers. Good, but be more consumed with love. Are you super concerned with practicing the spiritual disciplines? Good, but be more consumed by love. Let your love drive you to those things. 
Those gifts and blessings should flow from love and not be a replacement for love. They flow from love. They're not a replacement for love. Love will be the defining nature of the relationship in heaven, of relationships in heaven. So love ought to be the defining nature of relationship in the church now. Guys, we looked at these two what's and the why. We need to be reminded that love is central. We need to be reminded that love is an action that values the interests of others over our own. But the beautiful truth is that it is foundational to us because that is who God is and he empowers us to be this way because of what he has done. Love doesn't stand on the sidelines, but it enters into the messiness of the lives of others. And that's exactly what God did with us. He inconvenienced himself for you and for me. So let's let our life in the church be governed and defined by love because that's the way it'll be in eternity. May we go forth in love. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you that as you speak to us this morning, as you show us what Paul wrote so many years ago about love, that these are not strange and foreign things that are apart from you, but they're things that you did because that is your heart. We thank you that you have not asked us to do anything that you have not already done. We thank you that you cultivate our hearts. We thank you that you work within us and you help us to see and to know the truth. You help us to make right choices and then you use those right choices to further mold our own hearts. Father, help us to be a people that actually loves. May we be a church that is loving. When people experience us, may they see that is a church that is loving and that is a church that is like God himself because that love is present. Father, we beg for your mercy because we know that we need to grow. We know that we need to be different. And we know that even if we do grow, we will still have a long way to go. And there is never a finish line that we will cross that says we have now reached full love. Father, will you help us to just grow in love more and more each day, looking to you and understanding that you are our standard and that you are good and that your love drives us to love others. Father, have mercy on us in your love and help us to be those types of men and women. We praise you and we pray all this in Jesus' loving name.